Hello, I'm Sean Murray, and this is The Conversation, where we take an alternative look at political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. In this show, we hope to pick, probe, investigate, and uncover the stories that you want to hear. We go where mainstream won't go. This week, we interview lawyer, activist, human rights advocate, and a leading voice in civic nationalism. He's Secretary of Ireland's Future, an organisation established to promote, debate and discuss the viability of new constitutional arrangements in the event of United Ireland. But before we do, let's take a quick look at what's in store for this week's show. As always, we are joined by our resident co-presenter, Michelle Gildernew. Michelle is the current MP for Fermanagh, South Tyrol. She has served in the Northern Ireland Assembly as a former Minister for Agriculture and Rural Development and chairperson of the Health Committee, amongst other things. Michelle has been a Sinn Féin activist since her teens and has been elected almost continuously since 1998. And today's guest is Niall Murphy. Niall is a leading light in the growing campaign for Irish unity. He also represents many victims in their search for truth and justice with regards to state violence during the conflict. Nell Murphy, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here, Sean. Thanks for the invitation. Michelle, good to see you. Now, before we begin, what uh, motivated your foray uh, into the legal world? Um, I've always had a sense of um, what's right and wrong, you know, just as most, you know, people who are uh, reared in houses where that's important and I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was at school uh, sort of chose law as a default not knowing what to do law was something that you could go on and build and do anything and as I was studying and just becoming older and a bit more socially mature and understanding you know the issues which afflicted society at that time I went to Queens from 1985 to 1988 uh, so it was a quite, it was a period of political transition and your eyes become more acutely aware of life around you. Um, when I was finished my degree, I applied for a job in Madden and Finucane Solicitors in Castle Street and I'll never forget it. Last exam, I think it was the 1st of June, the interview was the 2nd of June and I started on the 3rd of June and that's been me since. So Niall, that sense of justice and injustice that you had 
then obviously inspired you to concentrate on your work on human rights law? Yes, you know, growing up there was a, an innate awareness that we were being raised in a society which was institutionally imbalanced, that the enjoyment in life, be it playing good games or uh, reveling in the culture of our music and our dance and our, obviously our Irish language, and understanding that that wasn't, you know, cherished on a societal basis and that our practice of our culture was not something that was mainstream. It, you would, didn't see it in TV. I can remember BBC began to broadcast the championship and it was a huge cultural event, you know, because it had never been on TV. Um, and for all of those reasons and many others, uh, when I did get the opportunity to, you know, put a suit on and go into an office every day, the opportunity to engage with people who were at the cutting edge of uh, injustice and to be able to advocate on their behalf very, very quickly, uh, I appreciated the high sense of privilege that it is to represent somebody, to be their advocate uh, and to make change. And you then moved on to a lot of, a lot of bigger cases uh, and one, not that one case particularly stands out, but one that we both worked on uh, lately was the, the Ormer Road Massacre. Mm -hmm. Can you just let the audience know uh, a bit about that and just the intricacies of what, has, of what information has come forward lately on, on that case? Any case where somebody has lost their life is uh, atrocious. It's the, the most appalling thing that can happen in the next of kin's life, that they have to endure the loss of their loved one. Uh, but in circumstances where it's a, you know, an atrocity, a multi-death incident, um, it really resonates from, from the outset as to the seriousness that, that, of what you're dealing with. And in the Omer Road bookmakers shooting, five people were killed. Um, from the outset, from before the families even sought legal advice, there was strongly held concerns, which then became evidenced, um, that the atrocity was planned, permitted, and that the killers were then protected from prosecution. And we engaged with the families on the basis of making a complaint at that time to the police ombudsman. Um, but the thing about the truth is that the truth always comes out and I, 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 I do have a, a comfort in regard that uh, state or non-state um, illegality can't be suppressed forever. Not even, I'm not even talking in a very local context, anywhere. The truth always comes out. It, you get the sense sometimes that it's boiling through the pavement. It will come out. You've, you've been able to, to carry out that work and to forensically go through the detail of that, but the, currently the British government are trying to legislate to stop um, inquests in civil cases. What happens to victims in that scenario then now? This new legacy bill, which is pending before Parliament, is the most egregious piece of law that has ever been visited upon this island, possibly since the penal times. It is the utter disregard 
for every citizen resident uh, in this jurisdiction. It is the only political matter which has unified all parties here. There is no support on this island for this bill. Yet it is being rammed through Westminster uh, with abject disregard to the people that it will affect and it deprives the most vulnerable people in our society of access to justice, of access to the court. Who do they think they are that they can insulate themselves in cases whereby they committed the crime? They are, are the intended defendant in civil proceedings, for example. What, on what society are we living that it is permissible that a defendant to proceedings can cauterize their own liability and stop those proceedings because they know what they did. In Whitehall, they have the big white wall with, with, with the main map what they did. Now, Niall, you're, you're a secretary in an organization called Ireland's Future. Can you tell the audience a bit about that organization? Yes, sir. Ireland's Future is just a, it's a fantastic initiative that I have had the um, privilege to be associated with. Uh, I, I act as secretary to, to the organisation, um, but the, the organisation is so many people, thousands of people, in fact. Uh, and it's a state of mind, really. You know, um, Anybody who is concerned about um, our current constitutional arrangements, the undemocratic nature of that, uh, and has an interest in the future, uh, can associate themselves as being Ireland's future. It's, 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 no, doesn't, it's not the privilege of one you know, set of people or, or any political party. We're a party political with no allegiance or interest to any formal political party, but we engage with all the political parties who uh, aspire to the reunification of, the, of this island. And really our analysis has uh, evolved in lifetime um, through the recent Brexit crisis. You've, um, you've been very successful in bringing together many inspiring people, a lot of whom are, are now friends that I've met through the work of Ireland's Future. But how do you see the next decade panning out, Niall? Um, what's your prediction with regards to unity? Well, I think we're in the decade of change. And sometimes you don't appreciate history when you're living through it. And Brexit is, a, is an example of that. At the time of Brexit, it was not long after the centenary of the Easter Raisin. And had you spoken to any person that was interested in that anniversary, in their heart of hearts, do you think that reunification is on the menu? I, I think an honest person would have said no. So that was April 2016. By the 16th of June 2016, two months later, the constitutional big bang of our century occurred, Brexit and nobody understood what it meant. It was an ill-defined question, uh, which was solely designed to cure infighting in the British Conservative Party, foisted upon an ignorant, with no disrespect, an unsuspecting public who didn't understand what it meant. They were fed lies, jingoism, racism, uh, and the vote went through against the better wishes of uh, the then Prime Minister uh, and the Leader of the Opposition. Um, so we have lived through an experience of how not to do constitutional change. There requires to be planning, preparation, public engagement, uh, scenario planning, empirical evidence. And it's my sincerely held belief that we are already in a decade of change, that the movement towards constitutional change has sort of outgrown 
uh, the perspectives of different political parties. And it's now, it's on the lips of people, the male and football, that this is the direction of travel. You know, demographics are a, a, a crude metric and I wouldn't, you know, point to them as the sole reason, absolutely not. Um, but it was the basis upon the foundation of this state and the demographic change which has occurred has occurred and it's never going back. A unionist majority in this jurisdiction is gone now forever and is never, ever, ever coming back. So society has to understand and respond to that fact. And in, you know, when you add in the abuses of this current government, the decade of austerity which has afflicted our public services, the massive economy which is thriving uh, in the south and when you look at the work of David McWilliams, for example, he points to the fact that pre-partition, uh, Belfast was bigger than Dublin. Um, the North, the Northern Six Counties were a net contributor to the British Exchequer. Uh, that stopped in the 1930s and has never came back. So partition has failed the North. Uh, we do not have an economy. We are reliant upon uh, an inflated um, you know, reliance on the, on, on, on the wider public civil service uh, and the opportunity to have a, a, a newly vibrant um, entrepreneurial economy. That has happened in the South and has reaped the opportunities that their corporation, corporation tax returns prove. That hasn't happened in the North. Uh, so the, the opportunity to revitalise uh, Ireland's second city is, is Belfast. Ireland's second city is not Cork. Uh, to revitalise the opportunities that exist for the talent that is just pouring out of our schools and universities. You know, we're one of the most highly educated areas on the planet, um, but the highly skilled jobs that our young people are entitled to. So it's, it's, it's really about, you know, imagination, but also it's about reality. Um, and the reality is that we need to plan and prepare for constitutional change. And whereas the work that Ireland's Future does, we procure expert evidence because social discourse should be informed by actual evidence. It shouldn't be informed by lies or emotion. So just bringing you back to 2020, uh, we're on the other side of a worldwide pandemic uh, and you had a bit of a scare yourself. Can you tell us a bit about that now? Yeah, um, a very, very serious scare. It was the worst time of my life and for reasons I'll explain you know um, and I, I now know emerging getting better afterwards that uh, my first 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th of March I became very 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 ill and such to the extent that there was the beginnings of some organ failure such to the extent that my wife received a phone call to say that she needed to steady herself, that I was sick enough to die and that I might not make it through that night. That was the 30th of March. And I was completely oblivious to all this. Like it's just the family were going through all of that whilst locked down. My, my mother in, in later months was so agitated about the scandal about, you know, the lockdown parties at Downing Street and just the, the egregious abuse thinking of 
my wife and my kids locked down and she couldn't even call over and make her a cup of tea or you know, help with a dinner or help with the kids. And everybody went through that. Um, but I turned the corner, I began to get better. I did get better. So I was, I was taken out of the coma and you're, you're weaned off the medication. And just that, that whole experience of, of being in a coma, it's not one I would ever recommend, but it is a life experience. Um, your life completely in the hands, careful, gentle hands of professionals, and you have no say in the matter, other than you know how your your body reacts, and that's a biological thing. Um, and it was it was life affirming, just coming around and having nurses, and your your head is all over the place because you're being weaned off. You know, very heavy medication, sedatives. And uh, when the doctor was putting me under, he said, you're going to have very vivid dreams, he called them. They were hallucinations. And I did. And I tell you, the experience of that, I, I could recollect every second of every moment as if it was lifetime. It was one of the days I was convinced that one of the children was out. There's like a garden courtyard. So I thought there wasn't, but in my mind's eye there was, and that she was just playing in the garden, and I was just watching her. So that didn't happen. I was also convinced then that uh, my, my friend and his wife and my wife were at the bedside, and that my wife and the the other uh, wife had decided, oh, "Sure, you're all right now. We'll go out tonight." And sure, you two mind the kids, and I'm. Obviously hallucinating. Where's the kids? So I apparently, you know, came roundish at about four in the morning and tried to get out of the bed, tried to pull all the leads out, and the partners had to, you know, put me down. And I'm, where's my children? Where's my children? And the whole thing was it was an experience that just gives you so much respect for the medical profession and everybody that that works there. As I was coming round. You know, some of the nurses that had looked after me in ICU came in to me and some of them would say, oh, I, I play, my brother plays for a Ahal and he knows you. Or another one says, I played Komogi for Glenravel and, you know, just small things that, so there, there had been social media stuff about me and there's a lot of stuff from, from the GA and, you know, just small personal things that, that really meant so much. And it was just remarkable. And, I had never understood, I've aunties that were nurses, I had never understood what a nurse did for, for a living. I now do. And when I got out of hospital, one of the things that annoyed me so much was this concept which has arisen of clapping on a Thursday night. And I wasn't, so I was contacted to say, would you mind if we took a photograph of you and your family out clapping? And I thought, these people don't need a clap. They need what they're asking for. Mm -hmm. They need a raise. And I contacted some uh, nurses that had been very good uh, to the family while I was sick, you know, just sort of translating almost to medical speak and where it is actually. And they said, no, it's something that the profession actually are taking a lot of comfort from. And it, 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 it is something that we're going to, you know, engage with 
in terms of our industrial action. So I says, right, well, if, 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 if that's good, then I did, and I did, went out, and the photographers came up and, and took a photograph. Um, but that, again, that our nurses, not three months beforehand, were required to uh, not be paid for a day's work, to risk the pension threatened entitlements that were threatened against them for, for safe staffing for having enough nurses on a ward. And I, they were run off their feet. Uh, and to have pay parity, not a pay increase, pay parity with other nurses in our so-called waiter NHS, it just really aggravated me and agitates me to this day. And that that, that, that sacrifice that those nurses and doctors made at society's time of need has been forgotten about. And that the Tory government, the criminality of this Tory government enriching their friends and in industry in these PPE scandals, billions of pounds that have been spent enriching their cabal uh, is money that could and should have been spent uh, rewarding the most important people in our society, in my view. Um, absolutely, Niall, and every single healthcare worker is a hero. Yep. Um, but in spite of your brush with death, it didn't stop you from receiving some pretty nasty and vitriolic attacks along with your colleagues by certain sections of loyalism. Uh, does that affect your work? Oh, listen, it's, it's, it's irrelevant nonsense. It's, social media is not real life as well. And the pomposity that you know some people think that their amount of followers lends credence to their opinion. Their opinion's irrelevant, and I don't care. It's completely water off a duck's back. Empty vessels make the most noise, and it's, it's actually laughable, pathetic. And insofar as that is pathetic, uh, it's immediately disregardable. Now, it's always good to see you. I want to thank you for coming in today, and we both wish you all the greatest health in the world after the story we've just heard. You're still tuned into The Conversation, your weekly alternative probe of political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. I'm joined by my co-host Michelle Gildernew, alongside our special guest Niall Murphy, a leading light in the movement for a united Ireland. This week we take a look at the role of the Black and Tans during the Irish War of Independence, who went on to gain a reputation for brutality and became notorious for reprisal attacks on civilians and civilian property, including extrajudicial killings, arson and looting. Their actions further swayed Irish public opinion against British rule and drew condemnation even in Britain. The Black and Tans were a British force recruited to assist the Royal Irish Constabulary in maintaining control over the IRA during the Irish War of Independence. Many had been ex-British and Irish soldiers signed up to suppress the Irish uprising, with many committing atrocities against Irish citizens. In September 1920, in revenge for the murder of the RIC district inspector and his brother, the Black and Tans sacked the town of Balbriggan. They burned and destroyed homes and businesses and beat two Republicans to death. As was well recognised at the time, the majority of those attacked were victims innocent of any documented complicity. In court in December 1920, two local boys with no IRA connections were murdered by the Black and Tans for what they described as impudence. Their bodies were thrown into a ditch after being dragged behind one of the dreaded lorries until they were unrecognisably mangled. This was just one example of what poet W.B. Yeats referred to in his poem, Reprisals, as half-drunk or whole-mad soldiery. 
WB8's sister Lily wrote to her father John in December 1920 that after witnessing months of black and tan atrocities and having seen a lorry load of them pass her house with reprisals galore scrawled on the side, her political stance changed. As you know, I was no Sinn Féinar a year ago, just the maid nationalist. But now? In January 2020, the Fine Gael-led Irish government was humiliated into cancelling a commemoration to the RIC after public pressure, along with opposing parties threatening to boycott the event. Despite denying it amounted to a celebration of the infamous Black and Tans, Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan capitulated to calls for the commemoration to be called off. 100 years on, and the move from the Irish public on the savagery of the Black and Tans has never waned. And that does it for another week. We'd love for you to join the conversation by sharing the link to today's programme to help us grow our audience across all our social media platforms. I'd like to thank our special guest, Nell Murphy, and my co-host, Michelle Gildenew. In the meantime, the conversation will be back next week with more investigations and analysis. I'm Sean Murray. Bye for now.